We will be in Mark chapter 1, beginning at verse 35 today. But I have a little bit of work to do with you before we get to it. I hope that you came prepared to think this morning. Judging by the expressions on your faces, it may not be the case. It won't be too bad, but uh, we need to, before we get into our passage, we need to think about a, uh, a big theological point called the incarnation. Uh, have you heard of the incarnation? Is that a word that you're somewhat familiar with? Some yes. Um, the incarnation refers to the fact that Jesus is God in the flesh. Carne means flesh. Um, so before we get to Mark, listen to Philippians chapter 2, starting in verse 6. This is talking about Jesus, and it says, Though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. That is the story of Jesus Christ, God with us, Emmanuel, in the flesh, incarnated. So Jesus is God and Jesus is man simultaneously. Okay, this is the incarnation. God in human form, Jesus Christ. What I want you to consider right now is that Jesus Christ prayed. Jesus prayed. Jesus, who was God, prayed. And just let that settle in for a second. I mean, I know you know that, but just think about it for a second. Why did he pray? He's God in the flesh. The passage we're going to deal with shows him praying. And I want you to be thinking of Jesus as a real man. He's not Superman. He is a real man. He emptied himself and took the form of a man. He operated via the same resources that we do. He required air to breathe. He required food and water to survive. He got hungry. He got thirsty. He required sleep. Jesus got tired. He required physical affection from his parents when he was a baby and a young boy, just like any of us did, and we still do. And he required prayer. Jesus Christ required prayer. So this morning as we read these verses, I want you to think of Jesus and understand him better as a man because I think it will help you to love him more and appreciate him more and to feel closer to him and worship him better and follow him better. I also want you, because we're going to talk about prayer a good bit this morning, I want you to turn from any guilt you may feel as a Christian regarding prayer to a, an, a holy ambition regarding prayer. Because prayer can be a guilt-ridden topic. Um, when everyone preaches on prayer, all, we all feel like our prayer lives are lacking. And it's true, our prayer lives are lacking. All of us can stand to pray more often, more scripturally, more fervently. Um, I don't think any of you probably walked in here feeling like you are the exemplary prayer warrior of all prayer warriors. But there's no need for you to feel guilty because Jesus prayed perfectly. See, Jesus was just like us, only he never sinned. So Jesus prayed perfectly, and he prayed perfectly on our behalf, in our place. So I just told you about the incarnation. That's one big I word, theology word. I'll tell you real briefly about imputation. 
You guys did not sign up for this this morning, I know, but imputation is a theological word slapped on the scriptural idea that Jesus's righteousness becomes our righteousness as Christians. So yes, you have failed in your prayer life. You know, big shocker. I mean, look at the rest of our lives. We, we are not righteous in of ourselves, but praise God for the doctrine of imputation for verses like uh, Philippians 3, 9. Let me read that one to you. Which says, uh, Paul said that he longed to, through the gospel, be found in Christ, not having a righteousness of his own, even though he was a spectacular, uh, a spectacularly faithful Jew. He was very serious in his following of God as a Jew. But he didn't want to be found based on his own righteousness, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law or the rules or the, the things that you ought to be doing but which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. So as we do talk about prayer, anytime feelings of guilt or shame come up that, you know, you've had this going on in your life and you really should have been praying more and, or you know you haven't spent five minutes in prayer over the whole last week combined, don't feel guilty because there is no condemnation for you in Christ. When God looks at you, he doesn't see your record for righteousness. He sees Jesus Christ's record for righteousness. So the guilt is, is an inappropriate feeling. Instead, you should feel conviction, perhaps, and the desire to change. And that's what I mean by holy ambition. So I'm hoping to hold Jesus up to you as the perfect prayer so that we can rejoice in the fact that his record is accounted to us, that God's not going to, when we stand before him, cast us out of heaven because we weren't prayerful enough. But then on the other hand, that we could see him as the perfect example of prayerfulness and be inspired to follow him more closely in his example in prayer. Yeah, I was given a book called Power Through Prayer by E.M. Bounds by one of my youth pastors way back. And um, he said it was a book that was important to him and he hoped it would be to me. It's a little book, but it's just a, it's a powerhouse on prayer. And it gives example after example after example of all these great men of the faith, you know, early church fathers or uh, you know, old pastoral men who prayed. They would get up at 4 a.m. and pray for five hours before they start their day. Uh, men who wore out the wood by their bedside where their knees rested while they prayed. And I read that book and I was very inspired to pray more. But... Those guys are great examples, but Jesus is the perfect example for prayerfulness. So we're going to look at his praying in Mark chapter 1, verses 35 through 39. And I'll ask you, if you would, please stand as an expression of honor as we read Mark chapter 1, verses 35 through 39 together. You can follow along in your Bible or on the wall. And rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark... He, that is Jesus, departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him, and they found him and said to him, Everyone is looking for you. And he said to them, Let us go on to the next towns, that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. And he went throughout all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons." Thank you for standing. You may be seated. So it's a simple sermon, especially since I had to uh, 
distill it from my um, four pages of <laughs> outline, which was really too much anyway, down to these handwritten notes. Um, I just want to point out four observations from this passage about how Jesus prayed. Okay, and I, I point this out to you not because Jesus is primarily our example so that we could be better, but so that you could see Jesus in his glory as, as a man and love him more deeply and so that you can see how to follow him better. He does want us to pray, and he did exemplify it. He is our Savior and our Lord. So these are just four observations. And the first one is this. Jesus prayed early. Jesus prayed early, early as in, in the AM. Look back at verse 35. And rising very early, very early. Some of you probably felt like when your alarm went off at eight o'clock that that was very early. This was earlier. And rising very early in the morning while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place and there he prayed. So this was very early Still dark. When's the last time you were up before the sun? Some of you, it was not that long ago. Some of you are early risers naturally. Some of you are early risers unnaturally, but you have to be because you have no choice. But however you feel when you get out of bed, when that alarm goes off, Jesus felt that. Jesus felt that tiredness. And you know what? He didn't go to bed at 6 p.m. the night before. We know what he was doing the night before. Do you remember? Let's look back at um, the night before in verse 32. That evening, this was the evening before this passage we're reading today. That evening at sundown, they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons. So what were you doing last night at sundown? Just picture in your mind, what were you doing last night as the sun went down? I'm trying to think of what I was doing last night as the sun went down. I think I was, uh, I think we had just gotten the kids in bed and Meredith and I were sitting on the couch talking. Um, so wherever you were last night at sundown, imagine the doorbell rings and you open it up and it's everyone who is sick or demon possessed in the entire city. And you are the only one who can help them. And the line stretches around your house and around the block and around the neighborhood and down the road and down Albemarle road or wherever you live. And that's your evening. That's your evening. You are in the emergency room as the one doctor for the evening. I imagine it was a late night, a long night, a hard working night full of people with fevers and runny noses and bloody discharges and broken limbs and uh, other people who are shrieking and croaking and screaming because they're demon possessed. That was his evening. Not sure when he got to bed, but the very next morning, rising early before it was light out, he went and he prayed. You know, I had... uh, a while there when I was taking classes, I've taken a break from my classes right now in case you didn't know that because it was killing me and my family and potentially it might have killed the church <laughs> too if I had continued. Um, but to make it work, I was getting up at 5 a.m. And some of you, that's just your lifestyle, not a big deal. That's a big deal for me. And uh, I was really inconsistent with it and it was really difficult for me. That alarm would go off. It took everything in me to get up. You know, I did all the things they tell you to do. I put my alarm, you know, in our bathroom in there. Uh, Once I tiptoed up front so I didn't wake everybody else up, I turned on all the lights. I had set the coffee up the night before. So all I had to do was press a button 
And then I would sit there and I would try to read. I would try to study. I would try to write. And then the coffee would be done. And I would start chugging coffee. And I would try to do it. And eventually, eventually, like a big train getting started, I would start to go. You know what that feels like, especially after a long night the previous night. Jesus felt all that. Jesus was tired like that. He didn't have coffee. But after his long night of hard work, Jesus arose very early to pray. So see him there, our Lord and Savior, praying very early in the morning. Fall more in love with this, our Savior, our Lord. But also see his example as a suggestion, perhaps, especially when we are in dire need for communion with with our Lord in prayer and in dire need for uh, wisdom from the word, perhaps instead of waking up to the uh, frenzy of the day, rolling out of bed to responsibilities being hurled through the air and we just have to catch them as soon as we get out of the bed and, and get started, perhaps we should consider getting out of bed early and praying. Which would be better, to be well-rested but completely prayerless or to be tired and prayerful? If you have to choose one or the other, I think we'd all agree that tired and prayerful is better than well-rested and prayerless. Because well-rested and prayerless also equals powerless and directionless. uh, Naked in terms of spiritual warfare. So... Perhaps we could stand to arise early and pray as well. Another thing you'll notice about Jesus' praying in these verses, he prayed early and he also prayed alone. Look at verses 35 and 36 again. And rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place. And there he prayed. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him. Now, I'm not saying Jesus always and only prayed alone, just like I'm not saying he always and only prayed early in the morning. I think Jesus, his prayer life expressed itself all day long in all all kinds of different ways and with all kinds of different uh, settings in terms of who was with him. But at least in many instances, he needed to get away from people in order to pray the way he knew he needed to pray. Remember, he was spending the night at Simon's house. There in the city, that's where they brought to him all the sick and demon-possessed people. So have you ever gotten up really early and tried to get out without waking up others? Our house has amazingly creaky wooden floors down the hallway. I mean, it's, I, I think I am an amateur ninja now for successfully being able to get down that hallway without waking up the children. I think that Jesus must have gotten up and snuck out. He at least did it very discreetly. He may have even tiptoed out. Have you ever pictured our Lord and Savior tiptoeing out? Try not to wake everyone up. Because they didn't know where he was. They had to search for him. He didn't leave a note saying, I'm going to go out to the desolate place. (laughs) I'll be out there if you need me. He could have prayed there. You can pray anywhere. But he wanted to be in a desolate place. That word desolate place really emphasizes unpopulated, that there weren't people there. It's not, when I hear desolate, I'm picturing just like the harshest wilderness of doom. The emphasis is there weren't people out there. He needed to get away from people. 
He didn't tell them where he was. He didn't have a smartphone. They couldn't text him. They couldn't email him. Him out there in the quiet, solitude, someplace where in order to find him, Simon and the people with him had to search for him. He didn't walk out and say, oh, there he is. They were like, where'd he go? I don't know. I looked over here. He's not there. I looked over there. He's not there. Eventually the search led to him. It's almost as if he's sort of hiding from the people. He needed to be away from the people. He needed to be away from those pressing in on him for help. He needed to be away from those responsibilities, from those uh, urgent demands. Jesus went alone, went away to be alone to pray. So another suggestion for us who are Christians, who are following Jesus as our example, and we see him there, our Lord and Savior, praying in a desolate place, and we, and we grow to appreciate him more. But I think we also need to consider, what is our desolate place? Where are we to go when we're in need of time with our Lord in the Word and in prayer where we won't be interrupted by the constant ping and ding of the phone in our pocket? Where are we to go so that the kids can't find us and ask for and say, I'm hungry, I'm hungry, I'm hungry. Did your kids do that to you? Man. You know, for me, that 5 a.m. in our living room was a desolate place because nobody else was up. And, and I still find that if I'm going to do, if I'm going to pray in the morning, I've got to get up early enough before everybody's you know, bustling about and my responsibilities are awake you know, before, before the responsibilities are alive and chasing me. And sometimes it may not be a place where there are no people. It may just be a place where it's not the people that you have immediate responsibilities for. I have found great solitude at a coffee shop, which will go, um, remain nameless so that y'all can't find me there. Um, I have found great solitude and ability to study the scripture and pray there, though I am surrounded by people but they're not people that I'm directly responsible for at the moment. And they're not, you know, people that, that need me right then. So it may not be that it's, you know, a desolate place. Literally, it may just be that it's a, a place where you can get away from the mess that you need to clean up or the reports that you need to fill out or the calendar that you need to obey, whatever it may be. Or it may actually be a desolate place. It may be the deer stand, Maybe you need to get in your car and drive to an anonymous Walmart parking lot where nobody's going to bother you. I don't know. But sometimes we need to do this. Often, I think. So Jesus prayed early. Jesus prayed alone. Jesus prayed under pressure. Look at verses 36 and 37. See, Doug can't escape the, the, uh, the urgent demands on his life. Look at verses 36 and 37. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him, and they found him and said to him, everyone is looking for you. Everybody's looking for you. Are you guys under any pressure right now? Anybody feeling any stress right now? Everybody's like, it's totally different response than when I said, are y'all ready to think? Great, one of these sermons again. When I say, are you under pressure? Are you under stress? Are you under demands? Everybody immediately is nodding their heads. Yes. Yes. This is sort of the universal struggle of humanity, at least in our culture, is the stress and strain of pressure and demands. And you need to know that your Lord and Savior, Jesus, can relate to that. 
There's a beautiful verse in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15. Um, this may actually be one of my favorite verses in all the Bible. It says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Jesus, Jesus knows your pressure, your stress, the demands you're under, the responsibilities you carry. He knows the complications of it. He knows what's on your plate. And he can sympathize. He can sympathize with it. He's not just an otherworldly creature who's never walked these paths that we're trying to struggle our way down. He walked these paths. And he can sympathize. And he's been tempted in every way that we are. Yet, he did it differently. He was without sin. So let's see how the perfect one handled pressure. And he was under pressure. Mark one twenty eight shows us that he was famous. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. This was after he first uh, spoke openly and people were astonished at his authority. And they saw him casting out demons and they were amazed. And his fame, everybody had heard of Jesus in that area. And you see what fame, the pressure of fame alone does to people, to celebrities. And you've seen quotes of how it's just, it can crush and destroy a person. He, under, he understood that pressure. He understood the pressure of demand. He was the guy that could heal with a touch and could cast out a demon with a word. And we, we saw last week that even though everyone was brought to him, he only healed and liberated many. So there were many in the city that still needed to be healed. They still needed to be liberated. And he could do it. He was capable. And they were searching for him. So, you know, you don't have people banging down your doors to heal them and liberate them, most likely. But think of your, your pressures, your demands, you know, your responsibilities, your challenges, your uh, email inbox that's waiting for you tomorrow morning. You know, that's always in the back of your mind. Oh, gosh, every hour there's another 10 emails, 20 emails I'm going to have to deal with. Uh, Your yard work that's getting out of hand right now. Looks like it's going to rain today. It's just more weeds, more trouble for you to deal with. Uh, Your family, you wake up. Like I said, the kids are hungry. They need breakfast right now. Uh, Oh, we forgot to wash the school clothes last night. What are we going to do? Your decisions that you've got to make, all that pressure that's searching for you. Jesus knew what that felt like. He knows what that feels like. He was under the pressure of fame and demand and also just under the pressure of his own compassion. Listen to this from Matthew 9, 36. This is another instance in which he was in in, um, a place and crowds were swarming toward him. And um, it says he saw the crowds. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. So here Jesus is, and he sees these crowds of people looking for him, and he knows he really could help them each. Yeah, it's a problem that he really could solve. He was under immense pressure, and yet he took the time and he made the effort to get up early and to get away from all of that and pray. He hit the pause button. He could have, woke, he could have gotten up before sunrise and started going around healing people. And liberating people, but that's not what he did. He got up before sunrise and he went out to be by himself and pray. Martin Luther has this great quote that I remembered from back in Bible college, and I've looked it up. 
And somebody asked him one day, what does day look like? You know, somebody asked you, you got a busy day ahead of you? And Martin Luther was leading a, a revolution in the Catholic Church. I mean, he was fathering Protestantism. Um, and he was teaching and he was preaching. And he was translating all the scripture uh, into German by hand. And he had all kinds of health issues. And this was a busy man under a lot of strain. And so somebody asked him basically, what's your day looking like today? What you got planned? And, and he says, quote, work, work from early to late. In fact, I have so much to do that I shall spend the first three hours in prayer. I mean, when I get a lot to do, prayer tends to be the first thing out the window because it just doesn't seem like it's getting the job done. But I think Martin Luther understood rightly. I think he knew, he saw the example of Jesus rightly. I think the more pressure, the more prayer. Don't let pressure crush prayer. Let pressure trigger prayer. Let prayer be our response to pressure. And I know how hard that is. I'm not standing up here preaching to you as though I am the exemplary one. Believe me, my wife is right there and she knows my prayer life. I I am with you in the pews looking at Jesus thinking, man, he is fantastic. Look at the way he handled pressure perfectly. Look at the way he prayed perfectly. I'm so thankful that his record is my record now. And I'm so inspired to emulate him. And I really am, and I hope that you are too. So Jesus prayed early, and Jesus prayed alone, and Jesus prayed under pressure. And then the last observation that I have for you, Jesus prayed, and then he acted. Jesus prayed, and then he acted. He got up, and he acted. Look at verses 38 and 39. After they came, and they said, everybody's looking for you. And he said to them, Let us go to the next towns that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. And he went throughout all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. Imagine the pressure to stay and to keep healing people and liberating people. Over in Luke, his parallel record of the same interaction says that all those people came and they were pressuring him to stay. They wanted him to stay. How was Jesus so clear-minded about the next steps? I mean, I don't know if you're like me, but the higher the pressure gets, the more confused I get about what to do next. How was he able to stand up and see all these people with um, real need in their eyes who really needed him and say, I'm sorry, no. I've got to go preach in the next towns because that's why I came. I am crystal clear on my purpose. I'm crystal clear on the next step I need to take. And it's in disagreement with everything you all think, and I know it is, and I'm sorry about that, but this is what I'm going to do. Let's go. And then they went, and he did so, and he went, and he was preaching and casting out demons all around Galilee, doing what he came to do. How was he able to be so clear and decisive? You know, you men, I know that this is hard for you. We're, we are the heads of the household. You know, we are the responsible ones. How difficult it is to be clear-headed about our responsibilities and know what's next with our finances, with our um, parenting, with our, you know, just all the big decisions. How did he know? Was it just because he was divine? See, I don't think so. He emptied himself and came to live as us. I think the reason he was so clear in that moment was because of his prayerfulness. 
I think Jesus was crystal clear because of his prayerfulness. So there he is, our Lord and Savior, perfect in prayer. Praise God that that record is ours. And what an example. So much higher and loftier than the examples of the early church fathers and even Martin Luther. You know, they are inspiring, but you know, look ab- above them to Jesus Christ, the perfect prayer. He prayed early. He prayed alone. He prayed under pressure. And then he acted. He prayed perfectly on our behalf and as our example. So let's, as Christians, let's be prayerful people this week too. Let's pray together right now. Father, thank you for this word. And I'm so grateful that you inspired men like Mark to write down these stories and these things that people heard Jesus say and saw Jesus do so that we can get to know him and see who he is. And Lord, I ask that we would follow him all the more closely for having read this passage this morning, this week. And for all of us who need you in many different ways, who have been chronically lacking in prayer, we are sorry. We see the folly in it and the sin in in our um, self-reliance. And we confess that sin before you now. And we're so grateful for Jesus Christ that we can be forgiven of it. And we're so grateful that you don't look at us and just shake your head and cast us away for going through yet another week and another month prayerlessly. Thank you that there's no condemnation for those of us who are in Christ Jesus. But help us not to only just bask in that salvation and forgiveness, but help us to get up and follow Jesus' example here in prayer. Please make crystal clear to us, just like you did for Jesus here, what our next steps are regarding prayer and all the other concerns that we have. Right, if, if, you, if we need to get up before the dawn tomorrow, if we need to take drastic steps to get away to a desolate place, make that plain to us, enable us to do it. We're so weak, but help us to be more like Jesus in whose name we pray. Amen.